Turn, if you would, uh, we are going to be looking actually at two different passages this morning, just a little bit. Uh, we are been going through a theological series. We talked a little bit about uh, general revelation. We looked a little bit about the role of the Great Commission responsibility. And um, we'll get back to a book study and, um, once we get into October a little bit. But this is actually a two-part series. And I thought it would be appropriate since we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And we're going to be talking this morning about uh, the humanity of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we, we understand as believers, the Bible speaks that Jesus died physically. But it really was his deity that enabled him to do, do that. But that is an important part. But we'll look at that. But turn if you would. We're going to look at Luke 1, 26 through 38. The book of Luke Luke 1, 26 through 38. And then we'll actually go to John 1 as well. I'll be reading out of the New King James, and I also have, I'll, I'll read the passage out of John, out of the Holman Christian. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. I know it's not Christmas, but uh, we look at the announcement, um, the Christ's birth announced to Mary. And we're going to be looking at verse 26 through 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive, and, she shall, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of the kingdom there will be no end." Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, there also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maid's servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word as the angel departed from her. And then over in the book of John, which will be John 1, and we'll be looking at verse 14, starting in 14 and looking at 14 and 15. Familiar passage text, and it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or literally took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son, begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me, because He existed before me. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we just thank You for the truth that Your Word gives to us. And while we do not understand all of the details, we know your truth. And it says that there 
was one person. Jesus the Son came to earth, but yet in fully God, but fully man. And as we read it, and as we seek to discern it, to understand it, while we may not completely understand how these natures came together, we can understand fully that it was your plan and it was truth. And we can also see the implications of God coming to earth to die on the cross for us and help us to be grateful, to understand and to love you more because of this act that you have done for us. And maybe you, you be lifted up. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. As you look at this morning, there are those who emphasize on the humanity of, of Christ. Jesus came in human flesh. And sometimes they just emphasize that Jesus was just a good person. Jesus was a good man. Maybe he became a God. But Scripture never states that. Scripture states that Jesus was fully God and fully man, referred by theologians as a hypostatic union. And I mentioned before, it's not the mysterious phenomena where the, um, the static cling that your socks stick to your other clothes when they come out of the dryer. But the hypostatic union is that God was fully man and fully God. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And as we look at it, there are four ways of which anyone, any individual can come into the earth. And so first of all, as we look at it, you want to change that slide, is that creation. Adam came into the world. He was created, ex nihilo. As we look at it, he took the dust God created, and then he formed man out of the dust of the earth. And then we have Eve. Eve uh, was not created. She was formed out of Adam. And then we have the rest of us, whereas we weren't formed by dirt, even though maybe some of us were covered in dirt. But generation, we are successive in generation from Adam and Eve, the rest of the human race. But finally, we have Christ, Jesus Christ, who came into the earth in a way that was very different from anyone else. And it's called from the Latin term incarnation, literally taking upon flesh. All that God was joined with all that man is. That is, when God had joined with manhood the divine nature, deity and human nature, humanity, were united. And this was done at the point of conception in the womb of Mary. The eternal Son of God took humanity and assumed it, and that it became his own as much as his divine nature was, which is, for us, incomprehensible. But it's important to understand the humanity. And really because of his deity, he able to do this. It was important to understand that the humanity he took was not a person, but a nature. For the Lord Jesus is one person, third person of the Trinity, but possesses two natures. A person without a human nature could not be human. So as we look at what kind of union was this? Because as we look at the text, and it's coming down, we're going to look next week at kind of the humanity, more of the humanity aspect. But this week we're looking at the physical. And I thought it appropriate because as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there is a physical picture we have, the remembrance, my body that was broken, the blood that was shed as we look at the juice. So as you go back, if you would, to, um, to Matthew, or excuse me, to Luke, and as we look at it, we're going to go through a little bit of the 
idea of conception. But before we get there, I want to express some, some truths about what was so important about a sinless human nature. Because it was not near, merely just a human body, it was a sinless human nature, inseparable and eternally united with the divine nature. Yet they remained distinct, whole and unchanged, joining without conversion, mixture, confusion, so that the one whole person, Jesus Christ, is truly fully God and truly man at the same time. And emphasizing in the incarnation of the two natures, it did not convert to a third, nor did one nature convert to the other. So there was no dilution or suppression. And this is where, you know, we are, are challenged with this, two natures. But what is the importance of having these natures? First of all, as we look at it, the hypostatic union is important because of the truths. First of all, Christ's two natures can be distinguished but not separated. Christ became something he never was before while never ceasing to be what he always was. Christ had only one personality. It wasn't that Jesus had, was a multiple personality. He only had one personality. Christ's humanity never had an independent existence. I know these are kind of deep, but just understanding, and it's important as we look at it. Christ is, is not able to sin any more than God can sin. And that's an important part because humanism says, oh, well, he could have sinned, but Christ was not able to sin. And that's important because it expresses who he was, deity. Christ's humanity is not independent of his deity. Therefore, he could not act as such. And finally, Christ never does anything as man and as God. He acts as Christ, the Messiah, who is God manifest in flesh. So as we look at coming to Bethlehem, and you know, I know Christmas is coming. You can see it in the stores already, and it's not even October. But coming to earth at Bethlehem, Christ could no longer act Acts solely as God, as we understand even in Philippians. Nor did he experience thirst and weariness solely as man. He cannot act as man without being God. He cannot act as God without being man. The Lord said, I am thirsty, not my human nature is thirsty. He said, I forgive you, not my divine nature forgives you. It is, it is challenging to look at, but let's look at the process, first of all, of what took place. But before I do that, let me read something for you. And so as we look at this confession of faith, it kind of explains the truth of the nature of Jesus Christ's humanity. And it says, and it'll be on the screen in just a minute, the, this confession, the Son of God, the second person, go ahead and advance that slide, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of the time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhead, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, I know that's a lot, and it's thinking, oh, I'll never use that again. But what does that mean, theologically? Let's look at, first of all, the conception, the fact that physically, Jesus became um, humanity for us. And what is the, 
importance of that. So as we look at in Luke 1, and one thing we want to express is that as we see is this conception. What is conception? Conception, and I'm not going to give a, um, a whole exegesis or an explanation of conception. We understand, um, just for, I know there's young people here as far as sperm and egg into zygote, conception. But here we have something supernaturally different. When Luke speaks of Christ as being conceived in the womb of Mary, he uses the normal word for conception, which is interesting. Because in verse 24, back with Elizabeth, he says, Now those days were his wife Elizabeth conceived. And miraculous as it was, because they were older, it wasn't the supernatural. Verse 31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And then in verse 36, it says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son. It uses the exact Greek word for the totally natural conception of John the Baptist from his mother Elizabeth, speaking reverently, conscious of the fact that this is a sacred subject that demands reverent handling. And, and here we have a human egg involved in the birth of Christ. As we think about it, Jesus partook of Mary's true humanity, yet without sin. His virgin birth and the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit preserved him from inheriting a sinful human nature. He had, had his nature been fallen, he would have been fallen. Whatever is true of one nature is true of one's person. So that element in looking at that, that is an important part because as we look at conception, it was without sin. But there is the, the human aspect in the, the, the physical birth. And as we go through and even understanding the development of Jesus Christ, as he developed as a human, he grew in stature. But it's the power, the overshadowing, it uses that term, overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, preserved from him from inheriting a sinful nature. While those who claim that Jesus Christ, oh, well, because he had human nature, he was sinful. Jesus maintained and preserved that he was fully God and fully man. And as we go to the book of John, just want to see it a little bit more because it gives a little more elaboration specific in the book of John. So turn to John chapter 1 as we read there. Because I think there's an explanation as we see here the essential word of God. Jesus Christ, he denotes the word of God. Jesus Christ, the personal wisdom and power in union with God. Minister in creation and government of the universe. The cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical. And what was the whole reason for coming to earth? As we look at it, it is for the salvation, part of God's plan, put in, on human nature in the person of Jesus the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, and shown forth conspicuously from his words and deeds. And in the book of John, as we look at the greater context, just mentioned it a little bit of, it's hard for us to, if I could transport you back to the first century, John was dealing with certain issues, and as he speaks, sometimes we miss out because we are not in, in that era. But Gnosticism was very, very popular at that time. And Gnosticism, to give you a quick summary, it helps us understand a little bit of what was taking place in the vocabulary. 
Gnosticism talks about this perfect first principle generated by a mission of a spiritual universe made up of aeons, and a fall in this divine world resulted in matter coming into existence. Sounds kind of similar to some of uh, the patterns we have today. But an inferior heavenly being fashioned the world and humanity. However, some of the pure spiritual nature was planted in some of the souls. A redeemer came from the divine world to reveal the way of escape for the divine spark out of the material world. The saved soul must pass through the realms of the world's rulers and return to its proper spiritual home. They believed that salvation was from ignorance, not from sin. So when they were saved, it was not out of, from their sinful state, it was more out of ignorance. It was, oh, there's a new understanding, a new knowledge that you obtain, so you're delivered. And knowledge was not just the means to salvation, it was the salvation. So as they look at, they read the def definition of terms. We believe salvation means deliverance, but it's what is it delivered from? Delivered from the ignorance of this world? Oh, that's intellectualism. Or delivered from the penalty of our sins, which we believe the Bible teaches. But now with that in mind, it's important to understand because as we look at what they were dealing with at that time was a challenge of the physical and the spiritual. Here, oftentimes, we don't talk about the spiritual. It's all about empirical evidence. If I can touch it, it's real. In today's society, kind of look at that. We become skeptics, if you will, and rightfully so, because someone who makes a claim, we're like, we, we understand that that's not necessarily truth. But there is an authority of here, the Word of God, and as we look at it. So here in John 1, let me just read it again. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the begun, or the one and only Son from the Father. That word took up residence literally means, in the Greek, pitched the tent. And the picture is in the Old Testament, oh, what's a tent in the Old Testament? It's not like, oh, so Jesus came and went camping, so we should go camping too. That's how the modern vernacular would interpret this. But understanding it's not that. Jesus came and pitched this in. It's a picture of the Old Testament tabernacle. The glory of God residing among them. Remember the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle as it went. It was a picture of God residing, present among the people. And they could see that. Every time the smoke went up, the offerings, the pillar cloud, the fire, the Shekinah glory from the Ark of the Covenant. But now all of a sudden Jesus Christ comes down to earth presently. And that's the term he uses, is they pitched his tent, or literally resided among us. And Jesus had a physical body, and the affirmation cuts at the root of the dualist proposition that the spiritual material were too incompatible to be joined. Because that was the challenge at the time, and as we see it, okay, God is here. And as, as the modern individual who questions, how can God, who is distant, be here with us? God created the world and maybe left it, we have. Deism, kind of wound up the clock and left it. Or, you know, there's a distinction between God and how can he be here with us as well. But yet this was in the person of Jesus Christ. He accomplished this. And at that time, we think about what was taking place. Even the, the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, there was a dualism, the ethical dual dualism of good and evil. Remember, everything that God has given us, the law, if we do that, it's good. 
everything else is unclean, so I shouldn't do that. And so they understood there was a dualism of what is good and what is evil. Those of you who think in black and white, you know, right, wrong, this or that. It says 55, don't drive that. Or, you know, you understand, you make, you try to put the world in, in, in this category. But also there's the eschatological or supernatural dualism. And what they did at that time was what is present now, this real world that we live in, and what is to come. So everything now I can do and it won't hurt me in the future, or everything I do now will affect me for the future. There's a dualism, understanding the present and the future. And then also the psychological dualism, which is the body and the soul, okay? The physical and the immaterial. So this is what they were dealing with in the time of Gnosticism in the first century. And so all of a sudden, John, he uses a term, logos, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. It hit at their core because in 600 B.C., Heraclitus used the term logos to designate for the divine reason or the plan. But then he says, guess what? Remember, it's not this. Logos is God defined as the deity, God, who is all-powerful, created this universe, and he's taken up human flesh. They are existing as together. It's not just the distinct God here, and then Jesus was not simply man. You have the two together. And the incarnate Logos, according to John, all of a sudden is capable of weariness, thirst, grief, and died only as men could die. And that's, as we look at the, the life of John, we think, why is it so different as a synoptic gospel written later? But it's interesting to see what he emphasized, the intimacy of it. John will not allow that there was anything unreal about the death of Christ. The old, uh, as Hold your spot, or go to John 19. John 19, the eyewitness. John 19, verse 34. And let me start in verse 31. If you know me well enough, I'd like to provide context. 31, it was preparation day. And the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath day because it was a special day. And here, for that Sabbath was a special day. They, and remember, the Sabbath, there were two, well, that's another subject, but there were two Sabbaths. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that the bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. Diffusion, that is a, a visible, remember the Romans understood death, but even if you think about the plural cavity, where the lungs are and encapsulated the heart, you may have termed about someone has carditis, inflammation, but what happens is there's water in the plural and in the heart cavity. And so all of a sudden, you, they, um, they were to stab up in there with the spear or sword, and then blood and the water rushes out. And they would understand that that was representative of the physical death, that Jesus did die physically, and emphasizing that, that he really did die. It wasn't a soul sleep, as some have claimed. Jesus Christ physically died. And while his birth was natural, going back to understanding Jesus Christ coming to earth, his birth was natural, his conception was supernatural. 
And the significance of that was that Jesus took on humanity so that he could physically suffer and die. If we go to Romans 8, Paul talks about that God sent his son in the likeness, in sinful flesh. I know I don't usually turn to that many passages, but go to Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, X, Romans 8. I like to kind of stay in one passage, but as we do a little bit of these theological series, it's important to understand just the key elements as we look at the physicality, the physical nature of Jesus. So Romans 8, verse 3. Free from the indwelling sin, and we can start in verse 1, just context. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus, has made me free from the law of sin and death. For that law could not do what, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In human flesh to be able to conquer the law before them. As, as we look at the role of the whole law in the Old Testament, it was to demonstrate that no one could keep the law. And that might sound frustrating to us because why would God provide a law that we couldn't keep? To demonstrate, first of all, obviously that we're sinful, but also to point us to God. Because if there's any way to fix something, we want to do it. And there's certain people who are um, project-oriented. If you know anything about me, sometimes I'm very project-driven. I like to finish something. And if it's before me, you know, I won't think about eating, won't think about anything. I want to get it done. Some of you may be like that. You're like, oh, yeah, no, just wait. Let me finish this. It's a puzzle piece. For some of you, if that puzzle was not completed, you'd be like driving up. i got to finish it or I have to do it. Others are like, why are you letting it bother you? And some who like to play the game and, and just hide the last piece. <laughs> but as we understand the completion, to be able to complete it, Jesus Christ gave the law and to be able to understand that because of the law, the law talks about in Galatians was a tutor for us to point us to Christ, to teach us. And here, in that the likeness of flesh of sin, it literally, the word likeness modifies sin, not flesh. It, or, in other words, his flesh was the same as ours. Otherwise, the death blow given to sin in his death would not have been broken its power in our lives. But his flesh, his human nature, was not dominated by sin as ours was. So in the likeness of the sinful flesh, literally the likeness of the flesh of sin. The gospel of our salvation depends upon the genuineness of our Lord's humanity, and so does the value of his life as an example for his people to follow. Because if, we said, if people said, oh, Jesus, you know, his humanity wasn't real. There's a falseness in that understanding in that the value of his life as an example for us to follow as well. The power of that example is weakened if we can say in our own failure, it was different or easier for Jesus. Only as he presents himself to us as a perfect man can we in turn be validly encouraged to grow up individually but corporately to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. It talks about in Ephesians. 
the fullness, the maturation. And in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, God was manifest in the flesh. And the whole point of today's message, if you understand, is that because he was God, deity, he had to be fully human, and it expresses, he had the power to express that through two natures. But the ramifications of that are so important because he was able to pro provide salvation and the forgiveness of sin to all. Because he fulfilled the demands of the law, the sin be met. And that consequence for sin. And since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature that through death he might deliver them. It talks about. And just in, in closing, looking at a few other passages. Hebrew 2. 14 through 18. It states, Insomuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Christ's victory over sin and death, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to sins, pertaining to God, excuse me, to make propitiation, that wrath-removing sacrifice for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." The power over sin and death. It just wasn't the accomplishment of the removal of the consequence of sin. Understanding that he is one who felt the same temptations. And in that, we understand that uh, how merciful, how gracious for him to do that. It's kind of funny because what often happens is when we suffer, when we go through something that is that is difficult. Sometimes the saying is, misery loves company. It's kind of interesting because even as young people are thinking, have you ever tasted something really terrible, like it's sour or tastes bad? Oh, you know, this tastes awful. Here, taste this. We want other people to partake in that as well, in suffering, because see, now you know. Now you know what I'm going through. Now you know what I'm facing. And when we have a Savior, when we understand the picture of Christ in full humanity, has gone through and suffered. We understand physical suffering. Each of you have gone through different things, maybe to different capacities, emotionally, physically. But to understand that Christ knows your suffering beyond what you could comprehend, it gives you a greater intimacy of how great the God of heaven sending his son to come and die for our sins would even stoop to do that for us. We see the reminder that is given to us in Luke 22, 19. And just going to ask um, the deacons if they would come forward, sit here, and just take a moment to think about, reflect upon that. But I'm going to have um, a special, my wife's preparing, but for our, the kids come, they're going to sing a song called Love Ran Red. And it simply is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ demonstrated his love through the act of the shedding of his blood. It
Thank you.